welcome to the first episode of We've Lost the Plot. My name is Devin Wright. And I'm Caroline Owl. And this podcast is about books you're supposed to read in high school, books you're supposed to read as an adult, books your dad always told you that you should read but you never really did. And we're going to talk about those books in any way they seem relevant today, be it how they're relevant to us as queer people, how they're relevant to us as people in the 21st century, or how they're relevant really in any way. Caro, tell them what book we're doing this week. This week we are reading, or we read Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. He did write that book, right? Yes, he did. Yes, okay, it good. was. I just had an immediate like, panic attack. Anyways, uh, we read Fahrenheit 451. Yes, uh, Fahrenheit 451. <laughs> it was published in 1953 by Ray Bradbury. Uh, Ray Bradbury wrote a bunch of sci-fi short stories. Yes, yes am I correct did. in that? I've, I've never read. <laughs> I've never read any of them. So they might be not good. He might have really got uh, he like a home run with Fahrenheit 451 and then kind of tapped out. He does have a very cool name though. I'm gonna add that in. All right, we're three minutes in and uh, Kara's already <laughs> insulting our authors. Okay, so uh, first first on our docket of things to do is a bit that we have kind of stolen from Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, which is a brilliant podcast, and that is their bit is the 30-second recap, but they do it for each chapter, and instead we're going to do a minute recap for the whole entire book. Uh, Jesus Christ. Okay, you're going first, right? Uh, sure. Do you have a timer? Yeah. Okay, okay. okay. You're going to count Ready? me down. Okay. And then three, I'm gonna go. Two, one, go. Okay, so um Montag is a guy who burns books. Um they're called firemen, um, because it's like a play on firefighters, um, because they don't fight fires anymore, instead they burn books because books are not allowed in this world, um, because they had conflicting ideas. And uh Montag uh burns the house and then goes home and meets um uh Clarice who is this um, who is not Clarice from Percy Jackson, although that's who I picture. Um, and it's, she is, like, weird and not like other kids, and she makes him start to think about things, and he goes home to his wife, who has overdosed, and um, two engineers come with a metal snake that scoop out all her bad stuff, and uh, she survives, um, but doesn't remember the, the next day, because everybody in this world is super uh, brainwashed, because all they do is watch the parlor walls, which are the walls of their parlors that have been turned into big television screens. Um, okay, stop. You're out. What? You're done. Okay. <laughs> you only got through the first part. <laughs> One minute is so much shorter than I thought it was. Okay. Oh, dear God. Okay. That was really good. Okay, right, count right. me down. Three, two, one, go. Okay, so Guy Montag, who's a firefighter, fireman, comes back from work one day and he sees this weird, like, glowing girl, essentially, and her name's Clarice, and she loves reading and books and all this fun stuff, which is something that he's against because he's a firefighter and firefighters burn books and all that fun stuff that I previously mentioned. So uh, he goes back home and sees his wife, and that kind of introduces you to, like, what uh, kind of life they're living in, where uh, she's only obsessed with TV and the radio and uh, she overdoses on sleeping pills because she doesn't have a care in the world and so he has to like call people and that's kind of what the society he's living in um, and then as the book goes on he uh, discovers how fun um, actual books can be and he wants to be intelligent and um, he uh, experiences loss and the firefighters are bad and there's an old man and it's uh, a book and I read it Stop. 
I, I started out kind of strong, and then I was like, I don't want to like reveal every single part. We're, we're assuming that people have read the book. This is the point of the podcast. That, okay. Is that people okay. are going to read the books with us? <laughs> I just didn't want to like give away like all the like cool ass stuff he did. So like every single plot point. So I worked this, hardish. This podcast will completely and totally spoil every single book we read. Okay, um, if you want me to redo it, I can. Well, no, 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 because I don't get to redo mine just because it was bad. <laughs> yeah, you, you talk too much about Mildred, who's um, his beautiful wife. I assume she's beautiful. Yeah, I assume she's beautiful as well. Do you also picture Clarice from Percy Jackson? Because I definitely I, do. I actually do not do that at all. Oh, okay. But, um, um, you don't imagine for... a big buff ginger lady who's the son of the daughter mm-hmm. of the God of War? I'm not really getting that one. Um, right. I am getting a girl with braids, and I feel like and her face is like an opal. Um, Thanks. What I, who I actually picture is Amanda Seyfried. <laughs> um, that's who I picture as Clarice. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Do we want <laughs> Do we want to just go from the beginning cuz my notes are in chronological order? Yeah, yeah. Um okay. kick us off. Um so uh the first the first note I have is just that the the prose is gorgeous, just that the first page of the book is some of the most over the top flowery prose I've ever read. I do believe you sent me that exact text message I did. when we were talking about this and I I completely agree like wholeheartedly it's like beautiful and it was like really uh enjoyable to read. It it is really flowery but it was it was good. Yeah, and I think I think yeah. um, his writing style is is very much a lot of fro- flowery prose, but it's with a yeah. purpose. Like his like uh, attention to like detail really adds to like the significance of the plot. I think. So I think it's like it works. Yeah, in this yeah. Sometimes it gets a little bit too much, but like like in general, prose can be a little bit too much. But it like completely works with what he's trying to tell you because so much of the story is uh, description. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because what I actually ended up writing a lot about is the way he changes his writing style throughout the three parts. Yes. The book is split into three parts. Part one, The Hearth and the Salamander. Part two, The Sea and the Sand. And part three, Burning Bright. And Montag speaks incredibly differently from part to part. Yes. As he goes through his journey of discovering, I think he said that books are fun, which I think is a, a hilarious. <laughs> and like, I wasn't incorrect, but I also yeah. wasn't very correct in, too. In the children's version of Fahrenheit 451, um, Guy Montag discovers that books are fun and Reading so convinces fun. his library to stop throwing them out. He, he actually begins to read Amelia Bedelia. Yeah, he, he reads James <laughs> and the Giant Peach. Um, and he's very excited about it. Um, <laughs> But the thing that shocks you out of it and kind of the first point of how this book is way different for us being millennials or whatever versus the people who would have read it back then is on the very next page you have the phrase minstrel man and you have um, the word burnt corked which is a reference to the use of blackface and the use of blackface minstrelsy in the 19th and 20th century which is just so bizarre we wouldn't see that today in in our books and it wouldn't it, it doesn't take away from the amazingness that is this book but it does 
it, it is a it does sully it in some way it, it like it definitely dates the book yeah <laughs> like, yeah like um as timeless as the story can be it does have these like really big clues that it was written in the 50s and you can take with that what you will but yeah it, it just feels very old sometimes yeah i think a lot of that comes out in the communication in the dialogue yes um but again that dialogue plays the same kind of role you have mildred and clarice contrasting each other in the first part right um and then you have faber and bd in the second part do you pronounce it bd uh yeah yeah my school I, I teacher pronounced it, it b80 b80 yeah. i don't think it's b80 All i right. think it's just bd we're gonna go with that okay okay maybe emphasize t's bt <laughs> no don't do that <laughs> Um, I think I think Bradbury does a really great job of establishing his world in the first part. The first part is so long. It is astoundingly and it's long. The most boring I, part of the book. I, I'll contrast you on that one. I, I think it's one of my favorite parts of the book because I love exposition. Okay. Thanks. Yeah, Hi, that's, I'm Caroline, and I love exposition. That's bizarre. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> someone really fast someone yesterday was complaining about how superhero origin stories are always the most boring uh, movies and I was like so angry I was like Captain America is good like the first one <laughs> I, I think most I, I think most origin stories are bad but only because they're overdone like I think that the first Spider-Man is not that good looking back I listen I know you're gonna yeah, I know take it back I, I think that the reason Captain America, the first Avenger, is so good is because it actively works to be a good origin story and a good movie. Like, you don't lose the the really good, like, period piece aspect of it. Right. Okay, so we talked a second ago, <laughs> to get back to the book that we were supposed to read, we talked a second ago about how Clarice and Mildred contrast each other in the first part, and you have put in our... Google Doc, our first yes. talking point as role of women in 451. Yeah, 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 yeah. So overall, I don't love the women in Fahrenheit 451, which is okay. Like the story's not supposed to be like feminist, a feminist piece or anything. But I think overall, the female characters are a little bit much. You have Clarice, who's cool. She's a little bit, I'm trying to think of a word that's not Manic Pixie Dream Girl, but I'm getting Manic, manic Pixie Dream yeah. Girl, even though she's not that. She's very nurturing, even though she's a child. And that right. kind of like women expected to lift men up because she inspires Montag, which I mean, like you can look at it in a more positive way, but I just don't love it. But I do like that she's the one that kickstarts everything. So it's, a, it's kind of a, a contrasting, I can talk myself in circles about my feelings on Clarice. Mildred is the exact opposite of Clarice instead of having, uh, which I like having kind of this huge juxtaposition. Um, and I like having uh, foils. Mildred and Clarice are foils, and that's really cool because Mildred is so not painful to read or anything, but like you just get so frustrated by everything she does, and you're supposed to, and that's kind of interesting. But you can also get kind of frustrated with what Clarice does because she's kind of weird. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and kind of like daydreamy. Like the whole, like, uh, there's a part in the book where she's just like rubbing a dandelion on her chin. And I hate that. Do you? Um, I actually think it's one of the, one of the- It's like sweet, yeah, I, I guess. Yeah, I think it's one of the more neat moments to me. It's, of, I that's something I can think about from my childhood. I, I think my problem is you have these emotions, you have these moments where um, she's incredibly intelligent and then she kind of feels spacey. 
Yeah, um, yeah, I actually, I have, I have her as a stereotype, but not. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just, she's a, uh, Clarice is a very weird character. Um, my favorite woman in the book was the woman, of course, who lights herself on fire. The first time you get to see Guy Montag in, in action. Right, whose name uh, we never is, know. Yeah, yeah, you never know her, but she sits there and she quotes, like, poetry at them. And then lights herself on fire, um, which is a way to go. Yeah. And I think that uh, the true, the true hero of the story is probably her. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, totally. I think Clarice, to me, was a really odd character because looking at it from a like millennial 21st century kind of idea, it's almost as though Bradbury presents Clarice as here is the one young person who is not like the rest. Right. Um, and she is very special, and they give her a reason for it, that her family teaches her a very certain way, and they teach her to think and to sit on the porch, and we get a, a mirror to that later when we have the the only other women in the book, which are the, the wives, the wives that come over. Right, right. Who throw, one of them says that people would be dumb to have children, and another one says that they just plop their children into school nine days at a time and watch them, I think, three days a month. Yes, and they lock them in a room. Right, in the parlor, yeah. Right, with the TV and, like, video games, or, yeah. like, what would be video games. So I think Bradbury makes a very interesting contrast between those two kind of things in the way he presents children and the younger generation, which I think can be looked at as a prescient indictment of kind of the millennial generation, which I kind of reject. Yes, there's there's something I absolutely detest about that part, like the depiction of children in this book, which I guess is, like you said, just kind of the millennial perspective. Right, yeah, maybe I just don't like how it young feels... people are portrayed by any old man. <laughs> yeah, I think it, I know it's supposed to be set in the future, but like if he's writing this in the 1950s and he's talking about the people now who make fun of millennials, you know? Right. Like the children he's kind of basing this off of are now the like adults who write think pieces about millennials. <laughs> yeah, I'm um, with you, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, uh, the younger generation in Fahrenheit 451 is incredibly, how do I, how do I put it? Like, They're very two-dimensional, but I don't know if Bradbury yes. does that in, it's not clear in the book, I guess because not a lot of time is spent on children and it's a yeah it's, it's not it's a fairly deep part of it there's there are the children who almost run over montag right and i don't know if he does it intentionally whether he wants you to kind of berate the children or berate the way they're raised yes because there's also this this huge theme of killing children in the book not only are the kids locked up and stuff but there's like this want to get rid of them you know like completely and you hear clarice talk about how like six of her friends were shot right even if year. it's not an actively trying to get rid of them it is a complete yeah. lack of empathy for children dying right you have like these kids speeding down roads and that's like a very weird thought right and and we see we see a reaction to children's death because mildred reacts very apathetically towards the death of the old woman who dies right and then the next day right. clarice or a few days later, she tells Montag that Clarice has died and shows the same apathy. Yeah, she's known for about like four days that Clarice has died and like just now remembered yeah, to tell right. her husband who had like spoken so highly of her. So that's like a very dystopian kind of yeah. idea where children are so heavily ignored, you know? Right, and at right least right now, yeah, in, in, like, in today's got society. Parents. Yeah, right. In today's society, you got helicopter parents and these, I, I keep going back to like driving, but you have like these crazy laws and stuff in order to keep children safe and it's so 
like right. just like, yeah, like a I'm... little like discomforting to even kind of think of a scenario where kids are so disrespected Is yeah that... actually so on on the point of safety for children like i'm from new york state and in new york state when you get your driver's license you're not allowed to drive on the taconic parkway or in the city until you're 18 right or until you get your senior license and i i think even politically there's a there's a parallel to draw between the complete disregard of of children's lives and of their safety i think even montag says that there might have been five or six children in the car that runs them over right, which is like too right. many kids in a car and like, <laughs> that was my even... first thought was there are <laughs> too many like... children that car. I know. My first thought was, where's their mom? Which is the point. Yeah, um. yeah. Um, but comparing that to like how we're reacting to DACA. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That there is a, a very large wing of adults that do not feel the same empathy towards immigrant children as they do to their own children. Or right. that, that they somehow see children who are just as American as every other child as somehow less because of, again, the way they were raised, which I think is an interesting... Um, that is, yeah, a really interesting Or the situation draw. in which they were raised. Yes. Anyway, that's been women in 451. <laughs> women and children. And also, gotta knock Clarice, that one out. Um, as a concept... <laughs> Conceptually. Yeah, I think uh, the next... Oh, okay. So I have this really big nerd thing about the dialogue in this book. Oh, Jesus. As you know, Caro, but our lovely listeners do not, I am at school for acting. I like, we are 22 minutes in and you're like, I am an actor. I am. <laughs> so um, I'm currently at school for acting. And one of the techniques that I have been training in is called is Meisner, which is made by Sanford Meisner. And the first kind of set of exercises that you do is called repetition. And you are supposed to say what you feel. You're, it is an exercise in subtext where instead of speaking text and letting the subtext lie below it, you speak the subtext so in a situation i would f say what i'm feeling i would say i'm frustrated that you're doing that and then they would respond with a true emotional response and that's what the dialogue feels like to me in the first part yeah if that I makes get, sense i get what you mean you've explained miser to me about 10 times that i've it's gone in through one ear and out the other but now i understand <laughs> and I, I see uh, your point. Yeah, it's interesting Definitely. to me how in the first part, it all the dialogue seems to be so incredibly surface level. And so this yes. is how I'm feeling and there's no reason behind it. And this is what's happening versus when he starts to talk to Faber. Yes. Within immediately by part two, Montag is speaking with more flow in general. Wait, I'm actually flipping through the book. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. As <laughs> Thank I'm you. You're for so stuff. polite and a gentleman. Just like kind of what you're talking about. But yeah, it's a very, besides my first word is rock and roll. It's very rock and roll how Ray Bradbury was able to um, put in his book, like as Montag, like the protagonist, uh, becomes more intellectual so does the book and it's Absolutely. very slow and steady yeah. and it's like you are it's like you're following him in like such a personal way like not a lot of books can kind of like really pull off that um like connection to a character but it's like you hardly realize it but like the words are getting more difficult and like the um the paragraphs are getting longer and the dialogue is getting uh, stronger and it's very cool very rock and roll continue with your pages so so in <laughs> the beginning of the first of the second part right this is just as um montag What's has the... read the first book to mildred Name. 
name the first part. The second part? The second part sleeves. is the sieve in the sand. Oh, sorry, Slicker. the sieve. Is that how you're supposed sleeve. to say it? The sleeve. No, I think the it's the sieve. The sleeve in the sand. The sleeve in the sand. Anyway, um, he's just read. That's just for me. <laughs> On the last page of the first part, he's just read. Um, it is computed that 11,000 persons have at several times suffered death rather than submit to break their eggs at the smaller end, which is from Gulliver's Travels. Yeah. Which is hilarious no. that the first book he reads is satire. Yes. And for for those wondering, we will be reading Gulliver's Travels. Yeah, it's on our list. At some point, it's on our big fat list. <laughs> and at the second part on the first page, um, he reads another part of the book. But by the third page of the second part, he speaks like this whole long paragraph to Mildred saying, what for, why, I saw the damnest snake in the world the other night. It was dead, but it was alive. And from the first part of the novel, he is speaking metaphors, but then immediately speaking their meanings. Yes. When he's uh, speaking about Mildred, he says that they're separated as if by a wall, and then right. immediately explains his own metaphor in saying, well, three and expensive too. <laughs> so it, it kind of, it, it reads like I, somebody who overexplains their joke. Are you describing yourself right now? I am describing myself. Because um, that's, I mean, that's a style of comedy that I use because it's hilarious <laughs> to me when you overexplain a joke that is very obvious. As for me, apparently I like mispronouncing words. Yes. I, Sleep in the slam. <laughs> <laughs> um, I in in our list of titles for this book, for this book podcast, I had put "I'll cover you" and then in parentheses in books, um, which I thought was hilarious. In case, because it's a book cover. Oh God, you are, the, you are the next Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> oh God, oh God. Um, I'm sorry, that's on me. That was the first comedian I could think of. I've been talking a lot about Seinfeld. It's fine. Lately, <laughs> um, casual. But it's so interesting to me that immediately in the second part, he has a metaphor about the snake, and he doesn't explain it. He just says it. Right. Which is just so neat. It's just so neat how how, <laughs> how a novelist can do that. And it's something it's... that we like will overanalyze the hell out of in current movies or in, yes. or in plays or in books today. But it's cool to see that it existed in such spades back in... 1950. Yeah, definitely. Oh, God. Yeah, because 1950s, this is just about satire in general. Isn't the 1950s, they get satire, but then the next generation doesn't get satire, and the next one does. That's like a thing. Is that a concept? That's a concept. Uh, You can, like, follow it in literature. Like, stuff in the 50s was, like, hilarious. Like, you had... I'm gonna plug Catcher in the Rye. Catcher in the Rye is a very funny book, but like a lot of people in the other than the generation afterwards, the ones who like condemned the book, yeah. said it, they did not think it was funny, but it's because it's all satire essentially, hmm. or a lot of Holden Caulfield's like dialogue is. Yeah, which I mean, and, like, it explains why older out, the generation above us <laughs> does not like John Stewart, whereas I'm obsessed. Whereas Devin loves John Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> My father hated. <laughs> Bill Clinton. Oh, Jesus. Can we get copyrighted for that? Uh, yeah, I think actually we now have to give all the proceeds from the non-existent ads on this podcast to John Mulaney, actually. Dear John Mulaney, I have 75 cents. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm about to go spend it on some gum. So it's... What we're, is... we're killing it. What? No, never mind. Never mind. <laughs> 
Can I like totally bounce to a different part? Totally. It's kind of the same bounce part. Away. Okay, we're bouncing to the end of the book. So at the end, because neither of us got to that part in our description of oh, we, God, yes. we really we really described Millie and then we forgot every other part. Yeah. Um, so at the end of the book, Guy Montag is um, after burning BD alive, which I I have read this book twice and I have never been able to pick up on the line where he actually burns him for some reason yeah. like I always like skip over it and so when I went back to like double check that BD died it was like shocking so he he when he burns BD alive and then runs away because he was discovered to have a whole library because what Guy Montag's been lying he has Whoa. a whole bunch of books what it's all but you, he's been fooling you anyways yeah so uh, after he burns BD and he runs, he runs away. He comes eventually in the night after they stop kind of looking for him. He comes across a whole forest full of like intellectuals, and they—that's when the um, the dialogue and the the way the book is written really kicks it up a notch because they even reference it in the conversation. But they kind of go back to like this um, Homeric style of speaking. All these men, each me each man he meets, has memorized an entire book because it's too dangerous to hold on to books so it's very much like this kind of word of mouth kind of uh, passing on tales to each other which is it's almost like they're restarting civilization which ties back to the fact that um, while this conversation is going on his whole city is leveled by like a war right yeah and by, by yeah assume presumably an atomic bomb yeah and, uh, yeah so and he got out of there fast well and <laughs> I, I think that what you, what you bring up like the Homeric ideas, I think that a lot of this is um, a lot of very old school philosophy. On on yes. page seventy four, it is Montag when speaking to Mildred before Montag goes and meets Faber. Right. Montag says, "Maybe the books can get us half out of the cave," which yes. immediately to me is Plato's the cave. Damn, bro, you really got onto that one. I like was like, yeah, out of the cave, cavemen got it. Next page. <laughs> well, yeah, that, I mean that's basically the idea in. Plato's the allegory of the cave, people are chained to this wall and can only see shadows on the wall as produced by this flame. And so one day one guy escapes and he realizes that there's a whole world outside. And when he comes back, the people don't believe him yes. because why would they? Exactly. And I think it's interesting the the kind of payoff for a line like that is the books are not the and this is another um, amazing part of the book the books aren't the point uh, right. the books aren't magic it's what's in the books and that Faber says at one point what you're looking for is in the world yeah he like uh, Faber lays out the whole importance of books and I have it in my notes oh the and part I'm, one I'm flipping. it's the one two and three with pores and stuff yes one of my Hold notes on. is does modern media have pores which I think is a gross note note to have. <laughs> Yuck! Faber lies out why books are so important. Books are important because they, A, and like this is why people are scared of them, because they record life and people don't want to like reflect back on life sometimes. They're leisure, but they also cause you to think, whereas like uh, in Ray Bradbury's mind, watching TV doesn't involve much thinking, I guess. Yep. So, uh, <laughs> thank you, Devin. <laughs> I'm with you. Uh, anyone else want to watch uh, Florida Bama Short or whatever that new MTV show is? I'm watching it. Anyways, <laughs> there will be no thinking, but I'm very excited plugging MTV right now. So you have the right, you gain this right to use what you learn when you read. You have this whole new bank of knowledge, and now you can use right. it against the world, or you can use it towards the world, and there's and like And you can also use it against other books. 
Yes, he says that books say, can be beaten down by reason. Right, and this is because uh, you have Faber talking, and then Beattie also talks, and Beattie uh, goes into why books were banned, and it's because intellectuals were such douchebags that it became insult to be an intellectual, and then no one wanted to be one. Which, if if I can establish a kind <laughs> of um, motif for this podcast, on the West Wing Weekly they have a joke <laughs> where they say they say Trump III whenever anything um, applies to today. Yeah. And I got that same thing in this idea that books uh, books can be beaten down with reason because nothing can be beaten down with reason seemingly today. Yeah, that was I, when I was reading that. I was like, well, I don't know. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, Ray Bradbury, you might have been uh, wishing very hard on that one. Yeah. Uh, and there was also this idea, and it's like totally derailing from what I was going to say, but now I want to talk about this, where the reason books were banned was that they became so politically correct that they just censored everything. Thing. And I want to talk about that. Yeah, that's I actually think this is another interesting. Weird. Yeah, I think this is another very interesting point. He has a very strong thesis, obviously. Yes. <laughs> it just so happens that today. It makes him sound like a dick. No, it doesn't fall got... into our preconceived notion of left and right. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. So while unknowingly indicting the, the political right of today, the alt-right not having facts and making intellectualism an insult, and I mean, as two college students, we can obviously <laughs> relate to that. Yeah, and like, I mean, it depends. It also wanna... talks about how books become so politically correct that they begin to censor everything, which is a very interesting and kind of the right. exact debate that is brought up is that it's a slippery slope and that we will eventually end up censoring everything. Yeah, and like 100%, I don't know if you can totally even like apply a lot of his ideas to like, especially this idea of like intellectuals being so like so many leaders of the alt-right went to top tier schools you know and so they're intellectuals and they're anti-intellectualism is used as a conscious yeah. weapon today whereas bradbury presents that it was just yeah. a natural progression and i think that this yes, brings up okay. something i wanted to talk about which is that faber says that there was no government edict uh, the government yes. didn't do this yes that's in sleeve in this land right yes in the yes, sleeve in this land it, yes because in the first part what was the name of the first part uh, the hearth De and the salamander <laughs> Devin likes the parts of this book for some i think they're reason. very important for, I think they're very. For the audience, um, he's been saying the titles or of the like different of the three parts in multiple conversations, but I think he just likes saying them. So in the first part, and I talked over what it was that you said. So what's it called again? The Hearth and the Salamander. <laughs> so in the Hearth and the Salamander, they briefly go over which is why named books... the Hearth and the Salamander because the woman is burned in the fire and Montag emerges as the flaming salamander. Anyway, go on. Yes, and also the salamander is on his jacket. Yes. And it's also the name of the fire truck. It's on the fire truck, and there's a patch on his jacket that's a salamander, yes. and Clarice is like taken by it in the first page. Anyways, so in this part, they kind of go over why books were banned, and they first tell, like the story that they tell everyone is that Ben Franklin himself banned oh books. Oh my god, I completely forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, he says that in 1791, uh, Ben Franklin told everyone to just burn them. Like, quote, burn them. And so it's 
very, I think that choosing Ben Franklin for that line is very ballsy. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think. And also speaks to the level that these, uh, of how I think misinformed okay. these people are that they're, cause like if you had told, like again, we're college kids, but like the idea of Ben Franklin telling people not to read books, you know? But like, that's right. not even, like, like that's crazy. But then like, uh, it's like, they don't even bat an eye. If you're in height 451, because like supposedly they like you can kind of uh, assume that they don't really know who he is, and like that's a very interesting tactic because it makes the reader stop for a second. Well, yeah, and, and there's a point where uh, they talk about how like, Jesus <laughs> is in the parlor walls. That yes. that history itself has been so uh, destroyed and changed. Yes, and like by the, the absence the, of books. Like they talk about Jesus, but then there's like this huge disinterest in the Bible itself. Uh, right. Like when because uh, uh, there's a part where BD has a copy of the Bible and he is. Not be where uh, Guy Montag has a copy of the Bible and he's like so excited, and he shows it to Mildred and she does not care. <laughs> right, and and to contrast that, Faber starts crying when he starts to rip it up. Exactly, like it is such a concept to think of a, like an America, like because this is probably America, it, right? Yeah, yeah. They talk yeah, about so how the to, whole world is starving and they're fine. Yeah, to think of an America where they are so fine without like the Bible. Yeah, which is, which again, is the kind of very interesting dichotomy that he walks in this book. Yes. Where he he predicts, and this is the the pitfall that I think makes this book um, shitty in high school, is (laughs) the way we all talk about it as though it predicted everything. Um, yes. But I think that it's interesting that he, in some ways, predicted the debate, but not quite. Yeah, he was kind of there. Yeah, he, an he America is, like, that, was... that has thrown out all books and doesn't care about the Bible is bizarre to us. But the fact is, they're still very religious because they are selling products by saying only true believers of Jesus would buy this. Yes. Yeah, that's like, um, oh man. Is that a comment on the treatment of the church, the idolization of Jesus, the Americanization of Jesus Christ himself? So, <laughs> just a quick uh, point. Ben Franklin published his autobiography in 1791. Oh, shit. Which is, is hilarious. That... Um, oh, man. Ray Bradbury knew what he was doing. <laughs> and um, I'm, I'm also, Kara's going to make fun of me, I'm also a journalist. Uh, yeah. A journalism major. Oh, I'm a God. double major in, in drama you and in about journalism. Both of your majors, and I haven't even kind of brought up mine. <laughs> <laughs> and Ben Franklin is credited with inventing the first American newspaper. That was also in uh, National Treasure. National <laughs> Treasure. What? <laughs> I, I'm only it's a fan the... <laughs> of National Treasure Two: Book of Secrets, which is clearly the superior uh, movie. I don't, I, real fast, I don't take that kind of slander ever. National Treasure One was fantastic. Which, if we can, um, our next book is going to be the novelization of the hit movie um, National Treasure, <laughs> uh, which is published by Disney Hyperion. <laughs> when you pull that name out fast, I could not remember Hyperion. For those wondering, I'm a political science major. <laughs> Which but should Devin's be evident kinda... by the way you're talking. <laughs> yeah, let's let's bring that up. Um, I do want to talk about, you uh, talked about the death of Beatty, and I think this is the absolute best example of Montag changing the way he speaks as he changes yes. his set of mind. Um, also completely changing any action he kind of even, like, sort of alluded to. You know what right. I mean? Like, um, you, if you read Guy Montag, you are not gonna pick up on someone who would burn another man alive ever. Yeah, and like, um, 
That's when, why I think it's so shocking. <laughs> when BD is dead, he says, you always said, don't face a problem, burn it. Well, now I've done both. Goodbye, Captain. So good. Which is such God. a crazy like... jump. <laughs> That's such a slam dunk. And also. this is kind of, yeah, it's a really good burn. <laughs> Thank you, thank um. you. Um, what I, what I do. Um, uh, you I, didn't burn him. You sounded like you're taking credit. You didn't do a damn thing, then, right? One of my, one of my notes is what makes Montag so special. So I, I think Clarice. He's named after Guy Fieri. I, okay. Yeah, I think I think you're right there. I think that the reason that Guy Montag is the main character is because of the precedent set by Guy Fieri as being the well most done. important of the human race. Do you think Guy Fieri was named after Guy Montag? God, I hope so. I'm Googling it right now. Continue with your, your very intellectual speaking, and I'm going to do this. Um, I don't remember because now I'm thinking about Guy Fieri. Um, that Clarice is so special, and they give her a reason to be. Yes. Um, They give her a background. They give her a reason, but we never get Guy Montag's. We never get um, his reason for being so special. Why? Beatty says that every fireman <laughs> takes home one book. Yes. Beatty has obviously taken more than that because he can recite yeah, lines it's, and lines it's, and lines. This is like, yeah, incredible. They have like this almost like intellectual dance battle. Well, uh, where they just kind of quote. Beatty has a dream famous... about that. It's not even that it happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so weird. I think that Beatty. <laughs> as a character is so interesting because he's the only other firefighter we meet and really know. One of the yes. things that you put in the note document is significance of the firefighter smoking. I kind of wrote three different things under that. <laughs> I, I like the final one that just says significance of the firefighters. Yeah, yeah. So significance of the firefighters looking the same and the firefighters all reading books and then just the significance of the firefighters. They don't talk. The dialogue in this book is very limited. It only goes to Monty, Beatty, Millie, her friends, Clarice, and Faber, right. essentially. And yeah, like and some then... of the guys in the woods. But it's like, you know he meets more people. He like interacts with people, but you just do not know what they're thinking or saying. Yeah, like there's a anything. point when he's on the subway and he starts to freak out because of Denim's right. dentrifice. Yes. And... I knew you were going to say something about dentrifice. That sounds like a very Devon word. <laughs> Does it? Dentrifice? <laughs> yeah. I, I only know it because it is. There's a you. there's a line in Bye Bye Birdie that has the word dentrifice in it. I'm going to call you dentrifice for the rest of your life. Also, sweet Bye Bye Birdie plug. Yeah. <laughs> so, significance of the firefighters. Smoking. Yeah. So I you go ahead into... because you put it's down. It's like a note. little one, but there's just something so unnerving about these guys who, like, their whole lives are revolved around burning things and destroying things, and then they smoke all the time because it talks about how gross it is in, like, the firehouse and stuff because of all the smoke and how they ha all have, like, cigarettes hanging out of their mouths and stuff like that. Yeah, and that and, and it's literally just, even the thing they do for fun or for a buzz yes. is also to burn. Yeah, like, it's just, like, they are so, can I say, engulfed in this idea of fire. <laughs> yes, fire I, and yes chaos. definitely you like can. Your... I think we've reached our pun <laughs> quota. Was that one? <laughs> well, I also I said that it was a good burn that Montag said when he <gasps> killed Beatty. Of course, I hate you so much. Yeah, um, you laughed at it too. Which... I did, but I hate you so much every single day. Anyways, so like this idea of like, because they describe fire as chaos 
and how much they love chaos, which you can tell by the way their world is run. Uh, there's a well, lot of chaotic elements. Because yes, you can't, Devin. But you can. but isn't it? It's such a controlled society. <laughs> it is, but it's like the way they even speak about it. You have the like your these women, the friends of Millie, who are talking about their husbands who are on the they're at the 48 hour war. Like that is absolute chaos. Yes, and you have children um, in in high speed cars, cars and smashing games and, and with guns and stuff like that's chaos i think it's obvious but it's just written in a way so you don't quite pick up on it but right. yeah like but it's in an so... authoritarian state which is the interesting yes. part to me yes uh president noble I president have a noble which is that the entire democracy is 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 obviously rigged hold on but again uh, with the president noble the first line you hear about him feels so kennedy-esque that yeah that's exactly who i pictured you did because i pictured kennedy and like that's not anything against kennedy we all know i love him i appreciate him (laughs) but it just they they are so fixated on this man who's more handsome than the other man and like this was before of course like the The kennedy nixon debates but you do like it just gives you kind of this weird flashback it's not like a prediction really i mean it's just like that's of course how it was going to end up yeah did you know ray bradbury knew exactly what was going to happen he actually predicted all the future yeah he predicted the trump victory actually um (laughs) Yes, yes. Oh, Jesus, you sound like my English teacher. Uh, <laughs> which is what we are trying to fight yeah, against that's the whole in this book. podcast, yeah. of course. Yeah, so like it's uh, like the natural progression of uh, televised debates and such uh, public campaigns, of course, would result in people talking about how handsome other people are. Um, but even like put in this context, like you have this like jarring realization of how stupid that is. I, that might have just been me, but like the when, like when her friends are talking oh, yeah. about like how handsome, like I, it made me feel like ridiculous for even considering the attractiveness of certain politicians. Like, Which, you know, to like, be it's fair, like, the other day we literally <laughs> went through the list of senators and decided who was hot or who was not. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to be, it was before I read this part again, but now I feel ridiculous. Because her friends were just so intent on how good the other man's hair was not. Yeah, um, so I do want to move on. Uh, um, Please get me off of this train. To a different, so back, we, we already talked about how there's no government edict, and this came from the bottom up, which is, re- you know, reminiscent of the rise of the alt-right. Yes. But I think another very obvious, I think alarmism as a whole is very interesting to look at this book through. Yes. Because there is sensationalism around Montag being caught, where even when they lose... Montag, they kill some random dude. Yes, that um, is horrifying. I, I, yeah. I, again, this book, and I really appreciate it, it brushes over these, like, very gruesome details right. in a very um, dystopian, I keep using that word, kind of way. Yeah, and we could talk about uh, The Hound for, you know, a yes, whole podcast. Yes, I want to, yeah, The Hound, uh, really briefly, I think I just noticed this, The Hound has made its way into pop culture as a, a villain a lot, it feels like, especially with the rise of AI. You have these kind That's of really hound-esque creatures and like it only reminded me because uh, <laughs> we both watched Kingsman 2 I believe 
Uh, yes. And there, um, are you there gonna, are literal, going to spoil? I'm not going to spoil it. I'm just going to say there's literal mechanical hounds. And I immediately thought of this book for the first time in years. Hmm. I also thought of the, the <laughs> in the second series of Percy Jackson book. Oh, that works. We're, we're done talking about Percy Jackson, though. We're going to have a whole separate extra podcast dedicated yeah, to Devin to, comparing... Just to me talking about Percy Jackson. Percy Jackson and Fahrenheit 451. Yeah, so but... far you have two points. <laughs> be a two-minute podcast. The other, the sensationalism <laughs> that I do also want to talk about is there is not a lot of talk about the war. Yes. They, they talk about it briefly, and Montag puts the earbud in, the seashell radio, and right. hears them talking about how it's going to be a glorious war, which is more familiar to us having lived through and have it being children during the 2003 invasion of Iraq. Yes. But even more interestingly, I think when they start talking about war, they, they say that America, seemingly, has started and won two atomic wars since 1990. Yes. And that they're every, literally the phrase, every hour, so many damned things in the sky. Why doesn't someone yeah. want to talk about it? Which immediately, to me, made me think of American drone presence. Yes. If, if there's, like, again, like, this book, I, like, I don't want to talk about how it, like, predicted everything, but it's just, it really shows how, again, like, the, this natural progression of things that was, again, I guess, easy to kind of predict. I don't know if I got that thought out correctly, but Ray Bradbury really put a lot of consideration into yeah. these themes. Yeah, I got the whole drone thing too. And I do want to add that like the whole like 1990 atomic war thing was it's just stuck out to me because like the Cold War ended in 1991. Yeah, you know? and so, and this you know, idea very not perfect. Yeah, <laughs> obviously you're going to get the exact date or whatever. Um, but like this like kind of like continued progression of like such a horrible, because I guess that people in this age were so scared of nuclear. Yeah. Explosions. Thanks. Yeah, I got that thought yeah, and out I, appropriately. Jesus. Okay. Yeah. So to to kind of sum up, <laughs> um, Ray Bradbury uh, predicted everything, and uh, yes. and he's amazing. Uh, so I do think uh, we should kind of taper off in our discussion, but I do want to talk a bit about the podcast moving forward. Um, but before then, yes. oh, I, can we do our favorite quotes from the yeah, thing? So I have my quote. I have I have kind of a. I texted Caro about this kind of game I want to do, where we talk about the what we think are the best quotes from the book. Because I think that one of the things that is so integral about being adult who an adult who reads like good books is like knowing quotes is like what you're supposed to do, you know. And I also <laughs> think in a completely different direction. So I don't mean, uh, you are correct. Yeah, um, <laughs> and I think that like. Um, like applying quotes to your life is something that like weird like normal adults do but like yeah i feel like we don't talk much about quotes when we learn about books um mm -hmm. unless it's like a, a a prompt for an essay right definitely i can't anyway, i cannot why don't you, quote stuff to save my life why don't, uh, you... why don't i start because my quote's stupid now <laughs> I, I want you to say it anyway it's, it's a section he opened another book that favorite subject myself he squinted at the wall the favorite subject, myself. I understand that one, said Mildred. That's my favorite quote from the whole Because <laughs> I also love talking about myself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's mine, and I know that Devin is about to absolutely uh, 
like slam this one out of the park with his because he's really good at pulling quotes and stuff and being so, thought provoking. I have Just tons. Just do it. I have tons. Rip the bandaid off. <laughs> um, the the one I I do want to talk about is I hate a Roman named Status Quo. He said to me, "Stuff your eyes with wonder. Live as if you'd drop dead in ten seconds. See the world. It's more fantastic than any dream made or paid for in factories. Ask no guarantees. Ask for no security. There never was such an animal." <laughs> Yeah, which is mine. I, I do also. I, I want to talk about another quote, which is when Faber is talking about. It, it's during his big monologue. Mm -hmm. um, so he's talking about Hercules, and he says, "If there isn't something in that legend for us today, in this city, in our time, then I'm completely insane." And that quote, I think, is the thesis of this podcast. Oh, that's really good. You really rounded that one out. I think that moving forward, we're going to be. We want to be talking to people who um, are around our age who have interesting uh, ways of reading their favorite books or their least favorite books because I think a lot of books to us become sullied by the education system and I think that we have a lot to gain from them even though we often like shit on them <laughs> you know yes so usually in yeah. this podcast we'll have two different sections uh one where we talk about the book and one where we bring somebody in to talk about it that being said we do need to decide on our next book uh great gatsby is that what we're going with we're going with great gatsby uh yeah i just that's that's the book i thought of so okay. we're going with that one and i like All right. that book so so <laughs> Hey y'all, Future Devin here. I just wanted to jump in because Carol and I totally butchered that first outro, so I wanted to jump in here and say all the usual outro stuff. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to us on iTunes and rate us on iTunes. It's a really good way for us to show up when people search or when people go into book podcasts. If you really, really liked it and you have a friend who you think would like it too, Please, please, please let them know. That's really the best way to spread the word. You can also follow us on Twitter at, at @losttheplotpod, and you can follow both of our personal Twitters, which are linked on that page. The next episode will go up on December 5th, and once again, that's The Great Gatsby, so if you want to read along with us, you can. Also, thank you specifically to Jack Samuels for providing the little short intro song at the beginning, and thank you to Phoebe Tsao and Adam O'Connell for helping with the concept and the titles and the books for this podcast. All right, I'm going to throw it back to past Carol and Devin because there's a cute little thing we do at the end of this butchered outro that I think should stay in. All right, thanks. Thank you so much for listening for the first episode of We've Lost the Plot. Uh, I have been Devin Wright. And I'm Caroline Alt. And uh, uh, go read a book thanks. or something. <laughs>